This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Navy is energetically pursuing the field of energetics, an emerging type of weapons that don't necessarily use gunpowder, but they might. Now there's a new program called Naval Energetic Systems and Technologies, or NEST. It's a collaboration among the Naval Surface Warfare Center Indian Head Division, Advanced Technology International, and the National Armaments Consortium. Here with details, the consortium's executive director, Charlie Zazette. Mr. Zazette, good to have you back. Tom, it is good to be back. So energetics, I thought that that referred to the high-speed warheads that are launched with just magnetics and so forth that go Mach 7 and blow up anything they touch. But it's more than that, isn't it? Well, you're right. It sure is. Energetic materials is used in essentially all weapon systems, whether it's for putting energy on target, like uh, small arms, medium caliber, large caliber ammunition, rockets, missiles, bombs, warheads, pyrotechnics, even the injection seed cartridges uh, that uh, launch our uh, pilots to safety are using energetic materials. It's in all that we do. So why is the Navy doing this as a separate program? Isn't that central to everything the Navy's been doing for centuries? Well, exactly. You've got to give a lot of credit to uh, Mr. Ashley Johnson, who is the Naval Service Warfare Center at Indian Head Division Technical Director. He understands the need to, to ensure that we maintain our strategic advantage And a lot of times people just take energetics for granted and they don't think about the challenges in synthesizing energetic molecules, to scaling them up, to getting them to production, things like simple things like single point failures or obsolescence. And the challenges of making energetics, as you can imagine, is that, making explosives. And so it does take a rare type of scientists, engineers, process engineers, chemical engineers, and that is somewhat of a dying art in our country. And we need to revive that. I think his vision coupled with our National Armaments Consortium vision is to unite not just the naval uh, capability, but the entire nation centered around ensuring we've got a source of supply and advancing the state of the art to take care of some of the emerging threats we're seeing in our uh, pure competitors. And again, you do hear a lot in the news often about these high-speed projectiles that don't use powder. But from what you're saying, there's still a lot of research and development life left in conventional types of explosives and ordnance. Is that true? It is absolutely true. And don't and don't discount the need for energetics, even in hypervelocity and hypersonics. All of them have to get launched, and they're launched with energetic materials. Uh, they're also, uh, their guidance is also, usually their terminal effects can have energetic materials. So even when we think of electric guns or, or, or hypersonics or hypervelocity, it's still using energetic materials. Well, tell us more about this NEST program. What's going on here and what does each party bring to it? The NEST is really going to be, I think, the cornerstone for our national energetics plan. And what it does is it unites the Naval Surface Warfare Center at Indian Head with the entire industrial base of the National Armaments Consortium, which is really the entire industrial base of all energetic material developers, scalers, and gale up in production. And so this is now going to put into one place the technical capability of our country and focus it to solve really hard challenges. The The way this works is using another transaction authority. And so we have essentially a six to 10 year agreement between the National Armaments Consortium, our consortium management firm, ATI, and the Navy to uh, really establish these public-private partnerships and prototyping capabilities that both the government labs have as well as the industrial labs and to bring them together 
through collaboration. And what about specific projects? How will those be identified? Because you've described a very wide field of endeavor, process manufacturing, research and development, materials, I guess even supply chain is a big part of this, plus some of these new exotic technologies. So how will you identify projects and how will those get kind of doled out among members to to work on? It all starts with the requirements generation, and that is obviously the responsibility of the warfighter and the development laboratories to set the priorities. Because as you say, you could try and take on the world, and, and that would just be overwhelming from a resource point of view. So the Navy sets those priorities, and we begin to collaborate, because the important thing is to have those conversations with our engineers, both in the government or the DOD and in industry, before we settle on the final requirement. We want to get it right the first time. And then what we do through the power of the network is we take these opportunities or these requirement challenges and we distribute them to all of our members, all 920 plus members. So everybody gets to participate and you know, not just to collaborate, but also to drive competition and in order to give the very best proposals to the Navy. And then they'll make a selection and we're off to the races. We're speaking with Charlie Zizette. He is executive director of the National Armaments Consortium. And just briefly, tell us a little bit about the consortium itself. Who are the members and what kinds of work they do? Well, thank you very much. The consortium really consists of what we call traditional defense contractors and non-traditional defense contractors. Of our 920 members, over 850 of those are non-traditional defense contractors. Our goal is to create an organization that brings together those that have great technologies out in the private sector, but have never really worked in the defense sector, and quite frankly, wouldn't know how to operate in in the kinds of requirements and illities that the defense requires. So we create this mentor-protege program that allows the non-traditional technology innovators, entrepreneurs that have some of the most phenomenal capabilities and bring them into with our traditional defense contractors, the names that we're all familiar with, General Dynamics, Lockheed, Boeing, and the like. And that is what this is all about, is to leverage that power of the network to collaborate and then to innovate. I wanted to ask you about what we know of other nations' activities in this whole area of armaments and of energetics, particularly China and Russia, you know, the rivals that the military is saying and in doctrine pivoting to, that are are they working on this kind of thing? And could we be outgunned even in the traditional types of weapon systems? Well, we know without going into great detail that they are not standing idle. They have aggressive development programs. They are advancing the state of the art. We know that they are our largest challenge and our largest threat. There are some indications that they are advancing faster than we are. And this is our chance to go and take care of that technology gap, if you will, between us and our peer competitors. And what are some of the things being worked on at this point? Do we know? Can you describe some of the work? Absolutely. The first and foremost is the development of precursors and raw materials uh, to ensure that we have a strong source of supply. We've developed both process technology and pilot scale for ingredients that go into fuses, and we've been working on advanced gun propellants and advanced rocket propellants that will give us more range and also worry about, in some cases, lower signature. 
You know, we don't want to give away our position on the battlefield. And so there's a lot of advancement in higher energy, also in safety and lower vulnerability so that we can carry the loads without issues. The other one is to lighten the load. There's a lot of work going on in trying to develop lighter ammunition. Anything we can do to make it easier on our uh, soldiers and warfighters and our, all of our uh, folks out in the field. Because I once toured a federal facility where they make energetic explosive materials in great big vats. It almost looks like a steel melting type of vat inside a building, of course, pretty well reinforced and tons of safety protocols. People had to leave the building when the pour was going on and all this kind of thing. And that's highly specialized and can be dangerous if not managed well. Is the idea of the supply chain, the ability of the industrial supply base, and not just the government itself being able to manufacture these types of things in the quantity needed by something as large as the Navy, part of the research? Absolutely. One of the one of the principal opportunities is the NSWC Indian Head Division is an arsenal and a depot, and it has over 900 buildings that are used for producing energetic materials. And there are very few left that have that kind of capability and capacity. So imagine now if we can appeal to some of these non-traditionals, these great chemists or chemical engineers, they have a place now where they can scale up or they can experiment with some of the technology that they're developing. And so one of my hopes is to start to establish these public-private partnerships that can use these defense facilities, capabilities, their laboratory engineers and scientists, bring them all together in this, you know, a well-disciplined and focused community and I'll tell you, sky's the limit. Just don't try cooking this at home. I would say absolutely not. <laughs> right. There's a reason we call them energetic materials. <laughs> Charlie Zazette is executive director of the National Armaments Consortium. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. We now bring you a special presentation from our friends at WEPA. Shane, thanks for joining us. Can you tell us about WEPA and your new podcast? Mike, great to see you again. The podcast series, Lessons in Leadership, what we're trying to do is, is take a deeper dive, a different angle into the conversation around leadership with great leaders at all levels of government. Uh, since the 1900s, leadership has been studied in a serious and academic way. Uh, great men, theory, the leader-follower theory, the inspirational leader, transformational leader. All of these are backward-looking um, development of styles, looking at an individual, figuring out how they did leadership, and then translating it into a form that we can use today to learn, to perhaps emulate, copy. But great leaders, they have more than one style. I think, I truly think that a great leader can adapt and transform into the role that's needed at that time. So what we're trying to do is, is talk to great leaders and go a level deeper. Tell us about your, a story in your past. Tell us an inspiration that really affected your ability to lead others. And this certainly applies in the uh, federal space. The federal government, it's over two million employees. Great leaders are throughout the federal government, both at the top and the middle ranks. And what we wanna do is ask them to pull inside their memory, pull inside their personal history, find those moments in time 
when they were changed, they were inspired, they learned something about leadership from another person, perhaps it was uh, from themselves, and they brought that to the workplace, and they inspired other and became great leaders. So that's what we're trying to do with the podcast. Okay, so I, I get that you wanted to start with leadership, but what makes leadership such an important topic right now for federal workers? Great question. Leadership today is tested like never before. Um, today's, if I had to put a leadership style, if I had to put names to it, we hear about um, empathetic, we hear transparent, we hear uh, inspirational. So. Today, we have COVID, we have a down economy, we have people, we have social uh, injustice that we're dealing with. There are many new factors. And it's drawing, like never before, on a leader's ability to pull from within themselves and adapt to the current change. So leadership today is almost brand new again. We're taking all kinds of different styles, attributes, learnings that leaders have. They're looking at the current situation that we're in and understanding how do I move groups of people? How do I move my employees? How do I inspire? How do I get them to the next best place? So I think leadership today, this conversation uh, is extremely relevant, perhaps more relevant than it's been in several decades. You know, we talk about an employee's personal route to growth, but what role does the management side have in this? I think in the federal government, it's, it's a little bit different than it is in the private sector. Uh, my father was a civilian federal employee. Uh, he joined the federal government in the 1960s. Uh, John Kennedy, he was inspired by ask, not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. He had opportunities to go in the private sector. That notion of service inspired him. It inspired an entire generation. I would like to think that call to service, which is unique in, in the federal space, in the government space, still exists today. Well, that about says it all, but is anything else you'd want the audience to know about you personally or WEPA as an, as an organization? Uh, I have been uh, around the group affinity insurance world for um, three decades. I've uh, led, this is my second uh, major organization that I've led. And I will tell you that we impart this feeling, uh, you mentioned it, Mike, about service, this notion. We serve those who serve. And uh, I will tell you that it's refreshing. It's a blessing to be there, and <clears throat> I have so much respect for civilian federal employees at every level of government. In this podcast, we're hoping to talk to leaders which are similarly inspired and can share their learnings over a lifetime, and uh, this will be useful information uh, for anybody in government service. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. 
Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.